Good morning, everyone. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, which is on page 1149 of the Church Bibles. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no one but God. But even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things come and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since then their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, If what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Thanks, Dorothy. Am I pressing record? It's all right. Okay, great. Uh, There's noise coming out of it. I think they've left. They saw me coming up. The band's abandoned me. Um, Great. Uh, Do keep that passage open. Um, Let me pray as we begin uh, and go through that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We pray that as we think about this passage, which uh, in some ways introduces the next whole section in 1 Corinthians, we pray that we would learn uh, a great principle, uh, and the principle of love before all other things. Uh, so we pray that you would speak to us by your spirit through your word and help us to think through these words in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when uh, Liana and I joined uh, Africa Inland Mission before we went to uh, Lesotho uh, one of our times, uh, we had a whole seminar uh, at a sort of a training thing in the Peak District. Very nice, the Peak District, by the way. Uh, all about giving up your rights. Uh, and uh, at the end, we even had to sign a document signing away all our rights. It wasn't like a legal one, more of just a self 
declaration one, um, giving away our rights. I can't remember what uh, all the things were, but it was things like the things that we assume to be our rights or, or natural freedoms we enjoy uh, here. So uh, things like rights to personal space or private time, uh, rights to the food we like, uh, rights to live in a culture that we're comfortable with, um, rights to having access to communication, those sort of things. Uh, and rights are interesting things, aren't they? And we've been taught within our culture particularly uh, that we're to defend them at all costs. If I'm allowed to do something, if it's my right, uh, we'll defend them. But today, Paul's going to call us to give up on some of our rights, not because we're going on a mission field, but because it might be the way to love others first. So the main point today uh, is very simple. Uh, it's love before knowledge. Love before knowledge. In this chapter, uh, we're not particularly affected uh, on the whole by food being sacrificed to idols and things. So in, in a sense, some of the, the, the topic isn't specifically applicatory to us. Uh, but we're going to learn a, a princ- some principles. There's lots of stuff going on. It's some good theology. And it sets us up for the next few chapters in 1 Corinthians. You'll see what I mean as we go. So have a look at that first verse. Uh, as we begin thinking about love before knowledge. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Paul writes this. Now, about food sacrificed to idols, which he's going to talk about in a minute, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Some statements are really so straightforward, so simple, they're really worth remembering in day-to-day life, aren't they? Knowledge puffs up, Love builds up. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. Knowledge puffs us up, doesn't it? Uh, Chest out, shoulders back, breathe deep. I'm the fount of all knowledge. I'm empowered. I'm enabled. I'm more enlightened uh, than the rest of you. Uh, Knowledge puffs up. He's not saying that knowledge uh, is a bad thing. Far from it. Uh, Knowledge of the truth about Jesus, as Paul often states, is absolutely essential. Knowledge is essential. Uh, Elders are to protect the truth. Uh, We're to teach it to our churches. This all places a really high value on knowledge. But Paul's point here is that love, uh, sorry, knowledge without love is nothing. As he'll say in chapter 13, uh, about all things done without love, he says they're like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, I could impress you guys with theological knowledge all day long, well, actually, maybe for a minute or two. Uh, But if I never communicate in love, in a way that builds up, then I'm just being puffed up, aren't I? I'm overinflating myself, is literally what the word means, to sort of inflate yourself. Uh, there's echoes back to the earlier chapters in 1 Corinthians, aren't there, about the, the world's speakers being very impressive and eloquent and, uh, and persuading people, being puffed up with their knowledge. Knowledge is good, but on its own it puffs up. Love must come first. So what is love? Well, he tells us love builds up. It's a really good definition of love, isn't it? Love, loving someone is to build someone else up. It's other-focused. Uh, you could retain every detail that you learn in your head, uh, possessing great knowledge, 
Or, like me, you can have a brain like a sieve in one ear, out the other. But either way, you can build people up in love, can't you? Whether you're smart or not smart, whether you've got great knowledge or not great knowledge, you can build others up in love. You could be a bright spark, you could be not the sharpest knife in the block, but you can build each other up in love. Knowledge puffs up, whereas love builds up. So I wonder how often we perhaps use our knowledge to win a debate or an argument in church. Throw in a wise word of scripture just to impress them a little bit, shut them down. We might be right, our knowledge might be correct, but if it's not done in love, then all it does is puff ourselves up. You've not been heard anyway, so what good is your knowledge to them? Rather, build them up in love. Uh, that's your primary goal, says Paul, as we enter these, new, these uh, few chapters, looking at rights and freedoms, looking at relationships in the church. Uh, we're going to be looking at spiritual gifts and church structures, male and female roles. Love, says Paul, as we think about all of those things, is key and primary to all those areas. It's why after all of these things in chapter 13, he's going to come back to love and speak about it for an entire chapter telling us all about love, building others up. That great definition of true biblical love is to build others up. Not a warm, fuzzy, romantic feeling inside, but to love people by building them up rather than puffing up ourselves. Uh, and if we're any any doubt as to the value of love over knowledge, uh, we get verse 3, where Paul actually, if you think about it, twists what we're expecting to hear. So uh, verse 3, he says, But whoever loves God is known by God. Now surely in this context of knowledge and love, we're expecting Paul to say that if we love God, then we obviously know him rightly. Our knowledge is good if we love God. But he doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, the only knowledge that, you, that is actually important in this world, that actually makes any difference or impact on your life or anyone else's life for that matter, is a knowledge that you don't even have access to. It's something that's out of, uh, you just can't have. It's God knowing us that gives us any hope that is our link between love to God and love from God. In other words, you cannot love God unless God knows you. That's the knowledge that's important. God knowing you in a salvation sense, in a, a God has called you sense to be a child of his, elected you, chosen you, set you apart to be his. If you're known by God, that is the knowledge that counts. In Galatians, Paul puts it like this in 4 verse 9. Uh, it's a rather random verse, but it, it makes the point. He says, but, know that, sorry, but now that you know God, and then he corrects himself. He says, or rather, or are known by God. See, how Paul's theology is not one of we must work out God and that's what's really important. No, God needs to know us. That is the starting place. Our salvation, our sins being forgiven, our relationship with Jesus, if we have one, uh, is only of worth if it's based on not what we know of God, but what, of, what God knows of us. Him choosing to show us grace, choosing to know us, 
to enable us to have the knowledge, to know Jesus, to know that he died on the cross to take the sins and the judgment that we deserve. And then any further knowledge that we then gain, we don't use to puff ourselves up. It's all part of his grace. Love must come before knowledge, Paul says. Uh, So, uh, now then, let's look at the example he gives. So he's introduced the great principle, love before knowledge. Knowledge is essential, important, but useless without love. We need love, love needs to come first. Uh, And in this chapter, he's talking about eating food or meat that has been sacrificed or offered to idols, to false gods. Uh, And the reason Paul's specifically addressing this issue uh, appears to be because they have written to him in a letter that we don't have anymore, uh, asking him about this very issue. Uh, Most translators recognise that in this chapter, Paul uh, occasionally quotes that letter that we don't know anymore. Uh, And uh, in the NIV, for example, you'll see some quotation marks as you look through uh, where they've... uh, made an intelligent guess as to where they're quoting from that letter that we, we don't know about. Uh, ultimately, though, whether they've got that right or not, it doesn't really change the principles of what's being said in this chapter. Uh, the original language didn't have quotation marks, uh, so it was complicated to know. But uh, we can still uh, know what Paul's talking about, w- whether they're right or not. So firstly, notice, uh, to... Uh, love others before um, knowledge does not mean that we forego or forget knowledge. Uh, so Paul, you see, in this issue of eating food that's been sacrificed with idols, begins with knowledge. He's going to explain to them what he thinks is right before God. He conf- he's either confirming what they've written to him or he's telling them. We're not sure which way around. But he, he wants them to know knowledge. But secondly, the next thing he's going to do, we're going to look at these in a second, our knowledge doesn't necessarily determine our actions. Okay, so he's going to set them straight on the knowledge, what you should do about, what you can do about this, what what is right theologically, but it doesn't necessarily determine what you then do in practice. Uh, This might be a helpful model, it's going to come up on the screen uh, for us to think through as we think about other issues, not just food sacrifice to idols, but all sorts Step one is knowledge. Think through the theology. What what is right before God in this circumstance? But secondly, love. Apply the knowledge for the sake of others first. So that's where we're going. Uh, So number one then, knowledge. Think through the theology. And the knowledge Paul wants them to be reminded of, specifically to this issue, but it's a really great one for us to be reminded of as well, is that there is one God and one Lord. So have a look at verse 4. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So verse 4 there, Paul is probably quoting some of the letter from the Corinthians and he's confirming their knowledge that they already know uh, that an idol is nothing. 
Why? Because there is only one God. There may be, he goes on to say things like, that. there may be many gods and lords uh, in this world, or that the world testifies to, but in reality, says Paul, they are nothing. They're not real. Uh, in our context, that would rule out all sorts of other options, wouldn't it, other than the one God uh, revealed in the Bible, Hindu gods, or the good God of Islam, or Mother Nature, or spiritualism, or star signs, or the idols of believing that all the answers are inside ourselves. In other words, we're God. Mind-emptying meditations, or the spiritual side to yoga, all of those sort of false ideologies and gods and ways we live for are nothing, says Paul. Reminding them of uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. There is no other God. There's no other God to love. There is no other God to know about. There is just one God, one Lord. Not only that, but because there is only one God, unless he knows us, we have no life at all, we're told in those verses. We, we are dead. In Romans, Paul says we're dead in our sin if God doesn't know us. Nothing to live for, no hope before us, no knowledge that can save us. There's literally nothing we can do, however smart we are. Verse 6 uh, is fascinating. Have a closer look at it. Uh, the first part of verse 6. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, and for whom we live. From whom all things came, and for whom we live. So in other words, all things, everything around us, the entire world and everything in it, is from God. And therefore we live for him. We kind of know that's a little bit of an impossibility, isn't it? To, to always live for God. But Paul doesn't leave us hanging, thinking, well, we've got, we've got a problem here. Uh, carrying on into, I'll read the whole of verse 6 again. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ. He is how we know God, that's Jesus, through whom, same words as about God the Father, all things came, same statement, but then it changes, and through whom we live. So not for whom we live, through whom we live. So all things come through and from Jesus, for we know Jesus is God, still one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and through whom it is Jesus through whom we live. What are we living for? We're living for God. So it is our relationship with Jesus that allows us to live for God the Father who is the only God through Jesus. It is the perfect righteous life of Jesus whom we live through. So that despite our sin, despite our failings before God, we can live for God alone. It's an extraordinary statement. I'll have a read of that uh, verse again when you get home, maybe. It's a reminder that there is only one God, one Lord, from which all things come and for whom we live, only because we live through the Lord Jesus. And with that knowledge, Paul says, there's our theology. 
What do we make of food offered to idols? What do we do about it? Well, the answer is pretty short. Paul basically says, well, nothing. It doesn't really matter. All the food in the world is from God, our one God, one Lord. It's all from him anyway. The idols it's been offered to, well, they're not, they're nothing. They, they don't exist. They're not actually there. It's a mockery for the Christian who has life in Jesus. Nothing about what we eat or how we eat makes any difference to our relationship with God. Verse uh, 8 puts it very simply. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Simple. It's an irrelevance almost, theologically speaking. But so prevalent is this practice in Corinth uh, in their culture of offering food to idols. Uh, it, it must be such an alien gear change from being involved uh, in that culture, going to idol sacrifices and uh, knowing that meat at the market's been offered to idols and there's feasts going on, but if you go to your neighbour's house for a, for a meal, you're probably going to have to eat meat that's been sacrificed. So alien is that previous thinking to what they've now become in Christ. It's pretty understandable, isn't it, that many of them are going to really struggle with, the, with this knowledge. And so verse 7 Paul says this, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Talking of Christians, this may be the knowledge, the truth, but not everyone's there yet, and that's understandable. He carries on, verse 7, some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat, uh, they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, even though there is no god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled do you see his argument there so while the very act of eating the food offered to idols may not be sinful says paul if you are eating it thinking that it might be sinful then the act is still sinful that's his point because we're choosing to do something we believe to be against god even if it's not in reality but anytime we choose what, to do something that we think is against God, we're acting against our conscience, we're going against God's will. Uh, most of us will have memories, won't we, of our parent coming into our room and going, you look guilty, what have you done? It doesn't really matter whether what we did was actually wrong or not in their eyes, does it? Uh, our parents are going to be disappointed that we've done something that we think is wrong. Because it says something about our relationship to them, doesn't it? If we do something that we think is wrong, it's almost irrelevant whether it is or isn't. And so it is with God. Now that's an important point, uh, because that leads to our second step, uh, love. Apply what we know, the theology, for the sake of others first. So, knowing that food is okay to eat, having that knowledge, thinking through the theology, does not mean that we should just jump in and enjoy that freedom. The answer actually is, well, it depends. It's complicated. So have a look at verse 9, and 9 to 11. So there's the knowledge. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights 
does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. Uh, The situation here, it seems, uh, is that uh, others see what you are doing and think, well, if he or she is doing it, well, then I can do it too. And so they do it as well. The problem is, though, is that they're not doing it with a clear conscience. They're not doing it with an informed knowledge. They're where they understand that they are free to do it before God. They are doing it like the guilty child in the bedroom. They still think it's wrong. But what the heck, Sam's doing it, so I can do it too. The knowledge of why it is okay has freed me to eat, but it's become a stumbling block for others to trip over. I might be causing my brother or my sister to sin because they don't have the same knowledge. And they're going against their conscience before God. My freeing knowledge, I'm free to do it. My freeing knowledge causes others to sin, to be destroyed. It's a serious issue. Verse 11, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. He twists it now. When you sin against them in this way, and wound their weak conscience. So now I have done something wrong. (laughs) Even though I was free to eat the food, I've actually committed a greater sin. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Not only can we cause each other to sin, being a stumbling block, by carelessly enjoying our freedoms or rights in Christ with, all, with our knowledge, but we too are sinning in being careless about how we use our rights or our freedoms. We sin against Christ, the very God we claim to be having knowledge about to free us. So instead, says Paul, verse 13, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Uh, I've already said most meats in the markets, uh, not just meats at special festivals and and feasts, would have been offered to idols at some point uh, in the process. And so Paul makes probably the greatest sacrifice known to mankind and offers to stop eating meat, becoming a vegetarian, to... Stop someone else sinning. I'm obviously just joking about that. But Paul's point is clear, isn't it? Our knowledge that gives us freedom in this life through Jesus are not to be enjoyed at the expense of not showing love and building others up. Love before knowledge. We are to give up our rights for the sake of love of others. We said a few times, haven't we, uh, food offered to uh, idols isn't particularly prevalent, uh, a particularly prevalent issue in our culture. 
Uh, but there are plenty of things that we should be careful about, about how we enjoy our freedoms. It's actually very, very difficult to think of some, <laughs> because otherwise we'd probably inform ourselves in a, in a knowledgeable sense so that we can reach a clear conscience together. But maybe we need to think through as individuals uh, some of the types of TV or films we watch, whether we engage or not with Halloween, how we spend our money, what sort of music we listen to, all sorts of things we could, we could think about. They're complicated things to think about. As I've already said, uh, one good way to deal with them is to inform ourselves with more knowledge. And so as a church, uh, we can think these th things through and come to a clear conscience together. Uh, the, perhaps the easiest way to illustrate this point is to think back over previous generations uh, of Christians and churches and think about some of the freedoms we enjoy today that they didn't. Previous de generations banned dancing. Personally, I think that was a very good idea. Uh, or alcohol entirely from their, their lives. And if we lived at those times, even if we had the knowledge we have today where we believe we're free to enjoy those things sensibly, uh, it would still probably be the right thing to not do those things because our knowledge doesn't free us. To, sorry, our knowledge frees us to do them, but our love does, says it's not a good idea to do. We don't want to cause others to sin. Uh, so this week, maybe we want to have a think through uh, some things in our lives. What areas do we need to look at um, uh, and review our actions? We may feel free to do them before God, before Christ. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean we're right. We should go to the theology first and think those things through. But if we think we are, uh, then do we need to address how we live, how we use those rights in front of others? Perhaps we look at other Christians and wonder why they're so restricted or narrow in their thinking or their behaviour. And rather than judging them or looking down on them, do we need to change our actions or freedoms to show love for them and to build others up? We do not want to be a stumbling block to others. Do we need to give something up for the sake of love before knowledge? Bear that uh, principle in mind as we go th forward in the next uh, few chapters of 1 Corinthians. But let me pray now. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have given us this principle of love, of building others up before all other things. We don't want to abandon or lose truth and knowledge. We hold fast to it, for it is uh, the knowledge of Jesus' death and resurrection for us that gives us life. So we pray that any knowledge we have would be used in love and love alone. We praise you that the only knowledge of true value in this life is your knowledge of us. We praise you that you have called those of us who know and love you by your own will and grace. We don't know you here today. Please know us. Reveal yourself to us so that we may enjoy your love and love you back through Christ and all he's done for us. And in our lives this week, we pray that you would help us reflect on these things. Help us not to look down or judge others 
who we perceive as perhaps weak or less knowledgeable. Help us to change our actions, to see that uh, using our knowledge, puffing ourselves up, is a greater sin. And so we pray, Lord, that we would put love first, so that we may glorify you and live as Christ did for us, loving us even to the end. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.